Hey there, friends. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we are covering 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 5, and then 12b through 19, which is the first reading for July 11th, 2021. Now, Tim is going to guide us through this today. And friends, I'm just going to give you fair warning. You may want to pause the podcast right now, grab an extra cup of coffee, get yourself a little comfy, because if I'm not mistaken, this is part of the ARC narrative text that our friend Tim McNinch is writing about in his dissertation. So he's going to have a lot of great things to say. <laughs> You're right. So this this passage does make an appearance in my diss, even though I'm actually focusing more on the ARC material in 1 Samuel. Okay, so it won't be quite so long. But you're right, Rachel, this passage has the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, front and center. And it's a super mysterious presence in the story. Hmm, intriguing. Okay, great. So can you back us up and and let us know where we are in the story? Sure. I mean, you did a good job of kind of getting us up to speed last week in our episode on 2 Samuel 5. But I'll recap a little bit here. Um, You know, it's also good to remember that 1 and 2 Samuel are really one big story. And they were Mm. only separated out into two books or two scrolls because it got long enough that putting the whole thing in a single scroll would have been physically unwieldy. (laughs) You could only have the strongest lectors to read that one. That's right. That's right. So the the bulk of 1 Samuel traces the story of David's rise and Saul's decline. And at the point where the first scroll ends and the second one begins, Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle. And after most of Saul's heirs are murdered, David becomes the de facto leader of Israel. In chapter 5 that we looked at briefly last week, the tribes of Israel unite at Hebron and crown David king, uh, which is the beginning of a new dynasty. And David leads a campaign to take Jerusalem from the Jebusites and to make it the new capital of the nation. Along the way, he also defeats many of the Philistines. And when we pick up the story here in chapter 6, David is bringing the Ark of God to Jerusalem to make the city of David both the political and spiritual center of the nation. Sounds fantastic. How did it actually go? (laughs) Right. There's a bit of a hiccup in the story. A bit. A bit. And you know what? Um, Every once in a while, maybe a couple weeks in a row here, (laughs) the Revised Common Lectionary just gets it plain wrong. And in this case, the editors of the lectionary crop out the center of the story, that the whole big hiccup in the process, which changes the whole flavor of the narrative, making it seem like this whole thing was just a big party that went great and everybody was happy about it, except for David's wife, Michal. Oh, and she's just so crabby. No, you're absolutely right. The missing chunk that the uh, verses 6 through 12a is a really important thing about Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant, right? Yes. And and not only is that the most interesting part of the story, in my right. opinion, it's also the strangest and most mysterious and challenging part of the story. And it changes the vibe of the whole chapter. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I think we should title this episode of our podcast, just don't skip Uza. <laughs> <laughs> because that's my central advice in working with this text. Don't skip Uza. I mean, it's fine to talk about the coming of the Ark to Jerusalem and about David dancing with abandon and about the significance of David t- 
tying the procession of the ark to both sacrifice, that is worship and generosity, his food distribution program in verse 19, all of that is good stuff. And it's included in the lectionary section. But all of that takes on a whole different shade of meaning when you read it in the shadow of what happened to Uzzah. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, this is just like we talked about uh, last week. This is another example of making David even more of a hero than perhaps Mm -hmm. the text wants him to Mm -hmm. be. Okay, all right. So walk us through it. Sure, sure. So they're en route to Jerusalem with a kind of ticker tape parade, right? It's like Mardi Gras. (laughs) And everybody's having a good old time. And then the oxen pulling the cart with the ark on it gets a bit spooked and lurches. And one of the priests, Uzzah, reaches out innocently to steady the ark and zap. He's killed by God on the spot for daring to touch the ark. Mm. And you know, having a dead body in the parade route puts a damper on the festivities, you might say. (laughs) So David gets angry and cancels the whole thing and ships off the ark to a Philistine shrine. Actually, it's a bit it's a bit unclear where the ark goes. The text says it gets housed at the home or shrine of Obed Edom, Obed Edom, the Gittite, mm. um, somebody from Gath in Philistia. Wasn't wasn't Goliath from Gath? You got it. You got it. David's had a sort of mixed relationship with these Philistines. Interesting. But in any case, the ark goes under quarantine. <laughs> but then instead of infecting Obed Edom, the ark prospers him and David has a change of heart. Let's imagine that. So he revs the party engine back up and brings the ark to Jerusalem a second time. And you know, this time no oxen are mentioned. So maybe David changed up the transportation technology, (laughs) but in general, this procession is just like the first one. So it's like this Uza thing is sandwiched in between two slices of Mardi Gras parade. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But that, Uh, meat of the story there changes Mm. everything. Mm. The Ark goes from being a trophy of battle in the first parade to being a symbol of God's dangerous holiness in the second parade. Oh, wow. Say say that again slowly. That was really good. The Ark (laughs) goes faster. (laughs) You're ridiculous. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. So the ark goes from being a trophy of battle in the first parade to being a symbol of God's dangerous holiness in the second parade. That's a big shift. Mm -hmm. Even though the parades are described almost identically, the second parade has this sort of solemn shadow over it because of the Uzzah episode. Hmm. The balance has shifted from a celebration of the king in the first parade to a celebration of God and a humbling of the king in the second parade. Wow. Verse 14 even points out that David makes a costume change, donning a linen ephod, which is um, like a robe of some sort, a priestly garment. But I think the point is that it makes him more anonymous in this parade. Mm. In fact, Michal criticizes David, um, but it's not necessarily because his robe was more revealing in front of the Judahite women. In verse 20, which goes a bit beyond the lectionary, but, you know, what the (laughs) She says that David has uncovered himself like, in Hebrew, the rekim, worthless people. Oh. 
I think Michal is saying that David should have been parading in proper kingly glory, and instead he's lowered himself like a commoner, dressing like the anonymous priests in the parade. So we can see how this Uzzah thing has changed David's own approach to the procession of the ark. This is fascinating. I've never really understood this progression of the story, like why these two parades and, and what the point of them were. But this, and especially this comment about Michal and how she's saying he's uncovered, I mean, in saying that he's uncovered himself, it's not about nakedness, it's about taking off his kingly glory mm-hmm. and the the symbols of his glory. That's fascinating. Yeah, you've got it. So, okay, so what impact does this Uzzah incident have on our interpretation of the story as a whole? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, for one thing, it complicates our reading of David as a character, which you've mentioned Amen. earlier. Yeah. Heroes like David often get flattened out in historical memory. We mm. valorize them and sometimes miss their complexity. Mm. But this story is not the only one preserved in the Bible that portrays David as kind of arrogant and presumptuous and mm-hmm. where a divine strike on someone close to him is needed to bring him back down to earth. Oh, this is a oh, this is a corollary to the Bathsheba and the baby. Mm-hmm. This is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Another instance where David's arrogance leads to the death of someone close to him because of his transgression and arrogance. You got it. You got it. Wow. These stories which are peppered through the David story show that David and the powerful institution of monarchy that he represents still has vulnerability and corruptibility. It's a way that the authors of this history, looking back from the failure of the Judahite monarchy, can drop in some foreshadowing of that vulnerability, even in their greatest hero. Mm. So there's definitely a message here about humility. It reminds me a little bit of the story of Tamar and Judah. You know, Judah is the founder of what arguably we could say is the most important tribe in Israel and Judah because it's the only one that survives. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And in his story, he has to learn humility in order to act righteously. Yes, those exilic scribes tried to weave in that theme through their history. The, the Uzzah thing also has something important to say about God, too. This God is dangerous. Mm. You can't just cart this God around to lend legitimacy to your own programs and pet projects. Hmm. Someone's liable to get hurt. Mm. And I think that's a pretty preachable angle on this text. Yeah. I mean, Trump waving around a Bible in front of St. John's is a pretty clear image of this sort of thing. Mm. Then again, I would encourage you preachers out there to make this sort of critique internal Mm. rather than pointing at bad examples that are, you know, out there. Nice. Where are we in danger of using God as a prop? Hmm. When do we shift responsibility for our own ideas and opinions off of ourselves because we've got a Bible verse to back it up? Hmm. When do we rise up in our own estimation because we think we have God in our corner? A preacher could drill down into those sorts of scenarios in ways that are very specific to your own context. And this passage has a sobering tone, a sobering message in those contexts. So let me ask just one thing that I've wrestled with, because I actually wrote on this text for my dissertation, too, because this is one of the few places in the Bible where a human um, becomes angry at God. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had to wrestle with this. And... um, one of the things that I had to think about was 
Was it fair or right for God to strike down Uzzah like that? How does that affect our our vision of God's goodness? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, I would just say that I don't think it's a retrojection of modern ethical concerns back onto the text to ask something like that. I mean, as you hinted at, verse 8 has David himself wondering the same thing. He gets mad at God's outburst against Uzzah, mm. so much so that he names the site there in memorial of Uzzah. He calls it mm. Peretz Uzzah, outburst against Uzzah. Mm. And, you know, I think, I think this is one of those mysterious episodes that doesn't really have an easy resolution to it. But at least from the point of view of the narrative, it's emphasizing that God's holiness is like inherently dangerous. Mm. It's in alignment with all of that priestly material in Leviticus and elsewhere that emphasizes the need for like hazmat level PPE <laughs> when attending to rituals in God's holy places and with God's holy accoutrement. <laughs> this story, the, the story paints Uzzah's steadying of the ark as, you know, perhaps thoughtless, but not as innocent Hmm. Uzzah assumed that the ark touching the ground would be more unholy than it touching a person. Hmm. And the narrative wants to say, um, no, you don't get to decide what's holy and unholy. That's God's hmm. call 100% of the time. So like I said, that angle doesn't really tie up the mystery of this in a neat bow, but hopefully that helps give it a little bit of a sense of the perspective of the narrative on that question. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think one of the ways I've always thought about this too is, um, is, you know, this idea that yeah, they understood that the presence of God was dangerous because holiness is dangerous to those who are not completely holy. That's where we get the whole episode with Isaiah and the call story and the coal that has to touch and purify his lips and his tongue. Otherwise mm -hmm. he'll be mm -hmm. slain because that's what happens when the unholy comes into the presence of the purely holy. Um, but I, I, I mean, so I see this more as like a, um, a vision of God as a natural force. You know, if you go out in a hurricane, you're going to get killed, you know, whether the hurricane is right or not, that's what hurricanes do. And that's what, how this, this story envisions God. And so then it makes it even more damning that David didn't put the proper protocols in place to protect the people around him. So I, I oh, still... Yeah. You know, I know I think that I could see how folks would get stuck up on this. Um, for me, in an ancient Near Eastern kind of mindset, this story is really damning to the king and, and less so about God. But that's just kind of how I've made sense. No, of I, it I think that's probably a good reading of it. I, I thought about also sort of framing this as like natural consequences. Like yeah, it's, right? not that, it's not that Uzo was so bad to do what he did, but it was sort of natural consequences of yeah. interacting with the holiness of God. Exactly. Um, at the same time, you know, all of this that we're, we're, we're both putting out there like um, I think helpful ways to think about the ethical implications of this, this portion. But again, I don't think it really ties it up mm -mm. so neatly because it does say, it doesn't say that Uzzah reached out his hand and, you know, as a natural consequence, he died. It says he reached out his hand and God got pissed off mm -hmm. and struck him down. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, there's that too. Yep, absolutely. So with that, you know, have fun, <laughs> enjoy your preaching, happy preaching. Uh, well, this is fascinating. This is a great and really, really helpful look into this story that I think has been really difficult for a lot of folks. So thanks for taking so much time with it, Tim. Sure. Don't skip Booza. 
Don't skip Ooza, folks. And you know what? Don't skip sharing out this great material either. If you've got a preacher friend or you're new to a preaching community and you don't know if they know about first reading, we'd so appreciate it if you just mention it to the folks around you or, or send a link to someone who you think might benefit from it. You can find our past episodes at firstreadingpodcast.com or you can find us on the Book of Faces and let us know if there's anything you think we could do better. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Don't skip Uza. <laughs>